Every ultimate experience Ireland has to offer is always within reach with a 182 BMW. The ultimate bowl of chowder, seasoned with Atlantic salt air, the ultimate swim spot, even the ultimate scenic shortcut that happily takes way, way longer. Experience the ultimate with a 24-hour test drive from your local BMW retailer. Because owning your new BMW is always within reach. Visit BMW182.ie. Every day we're confronted by evidence of the ever-widening chasm between the right and the left in America. And what's driving this hyperpolarization? We're also seeing so-called political solutions from both parties that don't seem to address our real issues. Our politics are ossified uh, by our most recent presidential election. We saw two 70-year-olds competing to see who could show more determination to bring steel mills back to Pittsburgh. Why are politics so broken, and are there any solutions? For some answers, I turn to uh, Yuval Levin and Arnold Kling, who uh, have some intriguing uh, ideas that I think I'd like to share with you. Among them is the damage done by the politics of nostalgia and how the three languages of politics and three moral universes are driving us apart. And the solution, subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. <laughs> okay, what on earth is subsidiarity? And what on earth does all this mean? I think you'll find that this episode explains it. You'll never think about politics in the same way again. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. I want to talk with you today about uh, politics and policy at the uh, 35,000-foot level. Uh, if you're like me, you're finding where we are pretty confusing about our politics, which seems to be quite fractured, and, uh, and uh, our economic policies, which also seem to be up in the air. Uh, with me today to talk about this are two brilliant, wise men, Yuval Levin and Arnold Kling. Uh, Yuval is editor of National Affairs, the, the Hertog Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a senior editor at the New Atlantis, and a contributing editor to National Review and the Weekly Standard. He also served in the White House domestic policy staff. He's the author, most recently, of The uh, Fractured Republic, topic much on my mind today, which is about renewing America's social contract in the age of individualism. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. Yuval, welcome. Thank you very much. Arnold Kling is an independent scholar who received his Ph.D. in economics from MIT. Previously, he was a researcher at the Congressional Budget Office, uh, an economist at the Federal Reserve Board, and Freddie Mac. He also founded the Internet startup uh, HomeFair.com. He is the author of many books, most recently Specialization in Trade and The Three Languages of the Politics, which is going to be part of our conversation today. Welcome, Arnold. Thanks, Welcome. Bill. Welcome, Yuval. Uh, Arnold, you want to kick this off? Where are we with, uh, well, let me just frame this a little bit. You've written in a very interesting way about the three languages of politics. Uh, 
and I'll let you describe that, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to communicate with each other about uh, solutions because we occupy separate moral universes or people in those camps do. And you've all, you've written extremely interestingly about how we're living in um, amidst the politics of nostalgia and both the left and right are dreaming of bygone days, which uh, in your view, and I think I share the view, are, are likely not to return. Uh, Arnold, tell us about the three languages. We talked about this in a previous show, but a quick uh, Reader's Digest summary before we dive in would be helpful. So I, I wrote this at a time when uh, there was a lot of anger in politics, and now that anger has turned into outrage. <laughs> and um, it, it describes the way each of the three political tribes express outrage. The tribes I had were progressives who uh, express outrage at the people that they believe side with oppressors against the oppressed. And then there are conservatives who express outrage at people who they believe side with the barbarians against civilization. And then the libertarians who express outrage at the people that they believe uh, support the uh, coercion of the state against the freedom of individuals. Uh, So I wrote that. uh, And it's it's a a reasonable description. I think politics has been somewhat upended uh, by the more recent uh, outbreaks, not just in the United States, but in other countries of uh, sort of anti-elitism. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I was thinking, actually, that in, if the United States were a parliamentary democracy, I think just as uh, a lot of the major parties in in, uh, in Europe have, have seen a collapse in, in popularity, we would probably see the same thing here. I, I think the center-left might be collapsing. I think the center-right might be collapsing. Um, I was asking if Yuval would be consider himself part of the, the, the collapse of the center-right, and you denied that you would be... Well, it feels like un- collapse. I just don't know about <laughs> center-right, but but yes. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think we're, we're, in a sense, lucky to have a two-party system at this point, because otherwise things would seem even more out of control than they, than they do. Um, we'll see what that's like when the far left takes over the Democratic Party True. and they win. Um, you may mm-hmm. not be quite as happy with the two-party system at that point. Well, the guys in the House say, uh, the Republicans in the House say they're basically two parties in the House. You've got the, the, the hardcore Tea yeah. Partiers, and then you've got the people that like it pretty much the way it is and want to keep that job and the, and the House gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose we've got the same things on the left. Talk about the, let's introduce the idea of the uh, politics of nostalgia. Yeah, well, so... Uh, in a sense, I start from a similar place, from a sense that there's enormous frustration now in our politics. That's unavoidable. And the question is, why have we gotten to a place where both parties really are expressing different forms of frustrations with our political circumstances? And I think one way to understand that kind of moment is to step back and think about how people express themselves in politics. When you do that now, when you do that really over the last uh, decade and more, what you find is an enormous amount of nostalgia on both sides, and it's nostalgia for a similar kind of time, though maybe for different reasons, where if you were just told that politician X gave a speech about how people used to go downtown and get a factory job and keep it for life, and maybe their kids could work at the same place, and that was a simpler time, and we've lost a lot since that time, 
it would actually be pretty hard to say if that politician was a Republican or a Democrat or which kind of Republican or which kind of Democrat. It's what everybody says. And there is an implicit nostalgia for especially the, the United States of the post-World War II era um, that in different ways the right and the left really exhibit. And, you know, we've just had a presidential election where two 70-year-olds ran against each other. Um, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of a better e example of uh, a country that uh, thinks about the future by thinking about the past. And the, the idea of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump arguing about who could more effectively bring steel back to Pittsburgh. Um, it's it's a strange way to think about the purpose of our politics. And you and you wrote that both Rick, Rick Santorum and Barack Obama, who don't exactly exist yeah. in the same uh, political universe, gave essentially the same speech That's about how right. great things used to be. Yeah, and looking to many of the same kind of, uh, of 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 points of example. Now, the right tends to emphasize the cultural side of the 1950s and 60s, the the cultural, the moral consensus, the high marriage rates, the high birth rates. Uh, the left tends to emphasize the economic cohesion of that time, the low inequality, the uh, the strong unions, the the confidence in large institutions. These are different things, but they're both forms of nostalgia for an America made possible by a very peculiar kind of post-war moment. It is not how the country's usually been, and it's not how the country has been for quite a long time. And so the question for us is really how do we come to terms with the ways America has changed since then, some of which are good and some of which are bad, and you have to use the bad, uh, the good to address the bad. Well, the best year for the, great, for the left was the Great Society year of 1965. Right when they just launched all the good stuff that Lyndon Johnson yeah. uh, And no brought. results were in yet. So <laughs> no no still, results. <laughs> you can still believe in the promise. They're, they're, they're in now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, then, the, then the pinnacle for the right was in 1981, yeah. the, Reagan, the Reagan Revolution. And, and again, probably results more mixed than people are willing to admit. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it certainly broke down one of the most important cultural norms, which was a norm around heading toward a balanced budget, and we have, we, we don't know how that's going to play out. Some of us are quite nervous about where that's headed. Yeah. But, and, you know, every election in the 21st century has been about, do you prefer 1965 or 1981? And over <laughs> and over, we've basically had an argument about which of those years was the best year. So it's, you know, it's like the old joke in The Simpsons about soccer tournaments being about which is the best country, Portugal or Mexico. Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's really not the question. Um, our politics for a long time now has been which is the best year, 65 or 81. And in the meantime, the country has been living in the 21st century, and we don't have enough of a politics geared to the challenges we actually confront in this time and to the strengths we have, which we shouldn't underestimate. So we have the three languages, maybe more languages, depending on where you are in the uh, in Arnold's world. And then you've got the, the 1965 people, the 1981 people, and then the other division, which we pointed out, is the elites versus the rest of the country. And that seems to split in an entirely, uh, you know, that's not necessarily uh, politically partisan. That's just uh, people being left, feeling left out of uh, mm -hmm. uh, the 21st century. Well, I think it's very much connected to this politics of nostalgia because there is a sense that's, again, been growing since the beginning of this century and before that our governing elites are disconnected from the realities of people's lives in a way that makes our politics have less and less to do with their real circumstances. 
and that frustration bubbles up, and it's it it happens on the left and on the right, uh, and you know, I, it it it's it's gotten to a place where our our political leaders, you know, 15 years after the beginning of the 21st century, when it should have been reasonably clear that. Um, this, the politics of this century were not going to be about how to govern after the end of history, but were going to be about some discrete challenges and difficulties. The best the two parties could come up with in 2016 was running Bill Clinton's wife and George W. Bush's brother for president. And the country looks at that and thinks there's got to be a better way. I think that's behind a fair amount of the dissatisfaction of people well, with their own leadership. Well, those are the politics. Uh but there's also the, the economics, which are which is the subject that I'm as interested in as anything. Is why, you know, what do we think we have now versus what people are nostalgic for? And if you look at America after World War II, you point out, I think, Arnold, you've written on this as well. We had a United States economy, which was the only surviving economy after World War II. Japan and uh, Europe were flattened. And so we had really two, three decades of of a, of a world where we were very insulated from uh, from the forces at work uh, that are at work now. Yeah, I'm I'm struck by, and I keep trying to emphasize to people <clears throat> just how much we have a different economy now than we did in 1960. 1960, we're still coming out of an era where there where heavy industry is what dominates. You know, World War II was won by heavy industry, their ability to produce more steel, more tanks, more airplanes, and so on. Um, we, don't ha- we don't have that now. Uh, we have, you know, the world of intangible uh, goods and services being most prominent, things that we see in Google, Facebook, and so on. Um, so it's, it's very different. One of my lines is the economy is something that evolves at the speed of culture. And we know that our culture is evolving rapidly. We just, you know, uh, some of it, uh, Yuval might be very disappointed at the way it's evolving. Uh, but the, um, so we, we, because it's embedded in culture, it evolves more rapidly than the physical world. And that's why economists have a hard time keeping up with it. And economists are still trying to look at the economy as if it were 1960 and we were allocating capital and labor. And it's just, it's just not, it isn't, it isn't that way anymore. And I think we've got a long way to go to catch up to understand what's going on, to understand the wide divergences in the economy, the difference between what's going on in San Francisco versus Akron, uh, the difference uh, in different in, in, uh, in, fl- Prices shooting up in certain areas of real estate, in health care and higher education, prices coming down for consumer electronics. Uh, just we, we used to have a much more homogeneous economy. Now it's much more divergent. And I don't know that we have the, the tools yet to understand it. And I think we're actually having a, we're kind of falling further behind in our understanding of it. You know, I would say that that's, that's connected to a broader set of trends that I would describe as fragmentation more broadly. If you think about what's happened to American life since the 1960s, fragmentation is not a bad way to think about it. We, we went from an unusually consolidated form of American life after the war, after the Depression, uh, and in every way we became more diverse culturally, we became more diverse economically, politically, and we have had a hard time coming to terms with some of what that means. 
What really strikes me about what Arnold says in a lot of his writing about this question is that the, the sheer fact of that diversity means that a lot of the tools we have for understanding our situation are out of date. And I think that really strikes you when you think about the, the intersection of the, the work that academic economists do and the work that policymakers do. Academic economics right now is unusually useless to policymakers. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, really know, you read let's, the minutes of the Fed let, and they just let's, kind of let's sit let's around thinking unusual, like, Unusually useless. Yeah, look. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so most, most of the social sciences are generally not useful to policymakers, right? Yeah. But I think if you were to look at exceptions, you would look to economics and you would look to foreign policy within political science. Two areas where academic work has often been very directly linked to the work of policymakers. In both of those cases now, the work being done in the academy is largely useless to policymakers. Mm. And policymakers feel adrift. They feel like they don't have any guidance. They don't have the right theories. So in economics, if you, if you read the Fed minutes, they, they, they just don't know what's going on. And the tools they have, you know, they're reasonably happy with what's going on. It's not a disaster at all. But... The idea that you have low unemployment and low inflation at the same time as fairly low growth and what's going to happen next, it's, they don't feel like they have a theory that really gives them guidance. And if you look at people who are charged with making foreign policy for a country, left or right, th th there used to be these debates between big schools of thought in foreign policy where there was this, a clear, distinct difference of opinion about the purpose of American foreign policy, how to think about the behavior of other countries. None of that really exists now. There's, there's purely ad hoc policymaking. Ask somebody at the State Department, what do we actually want out of our relationship with China? You're not going to get a very good answer. And it, it is, I think, an unusual moment. Well, do you, is that because the, the consensus about promoting American interest is, is no longer there? If you look, well, at, you look at what Trump said in foreign policy... Or in trade, it's America first, and yeah. this is about America. And we've we've had people Trump, who you know, were, were uh, perceived in real globalists. I think that this is a, a matter of kind of running on fumes since the end of the Cold War, where we've tried to keep using the same frameworks that, that were useful during the Cold War after it, instead of coming to think about how the world now might be different. What would be unleashed by the lifting of this very powerful framework of East versus West? I think what's been unleashed is something like nationalism and populism and ethnic tensions mm -hmm. and economic uncertainty, but we don't have we don't have a theoretical framework that lets us understand that. And look, theory has to follow practice. It's not as if we can't function without it, but it is strange how long we've continued to run on these fumes. And so, in that sense, how long our policymakers have been left out to hang by the people who might otherwise help them think about the world and understand it. Well, Arnold, you'd worked, uh, coming back to your notions of uh, economic, uh, academic work, I think it's very uh, interesting that, as John Allison said at BB&T, the, the Fed's PhDs in economics have missed every single one of the market meltdowns in the last 100 years. Well, especially the, the one 10 years ago. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've... Yeah, I've railed about this. I recently received pushback. Somebody said, "Well, did, you know, have you read the Diamond and Digvig model?" And this is a you know somebody who wrote down Di some Di Diamond and Digvig. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll curl up with that. Yeah, later right. on this anyway, yeah. They, they, so it, and I had read it, and yeah. it, it it actually is probably better than 
other stuff because it, it has a it includes the possibility of bank runs and so you know kind of so people say wow we, we, we we've had a model that allows for bank runs isn't that great well that's wonderful except you know nothing about credit default swaps cdos any of the financial instruments that actually uh, were involved in the financial crisis and of course you didn't see it coming because you you didn't even know what any, any of these things existed so uh, again, that that's to me a dramatic illustration of the economy evolving in much more complex ways than economists are prepared to look at. So that's so I won't from, rant about that. To, to come back where we've been, right? I, I think what I hear you saying is that in most of these academic disciplines, most of the disciplines that have guided leaders in the country, were unmoored from the certainties we had in the '60s, both in terms of where we stand, who yeah. our enemies are in the world, and also in terms of the economic levers, we don't have the big corporations that are going to be it's, doing the bidding mm -hmm. of the It's of not the federal what's government. good for General Motors is yeah. good for the country, and what's good for the country is good for General Motors. That's not, General Motors does, almost doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Certainly not as much as it did in, the, in 1956. So we're unmoored from the big ideas. Are, are, are people, have some guidance here about where we where we think we could take this? I mean, we've I think the, well, in a sense, Arnold's work points in this direction. I, I think the fact of fragmentation needs to be a place to start for social science. And the social science of fragmentation in different fields is not well developed. Um, and, and if so, that, so, by so, fragmentation, so, so, we mean... Let, I mean the breakdown of consolidated institutions and structures let, in society. Let, let's give an example. Yeah. We, we still use the term working class labor market, there's no working class anymore. If somebody mm -hmm. came down from Mars and, and looked at our economy from fresh, they would never come up with the idea of working class. They mm -hmm. would see this huge divergence in occupations, this extreme specialization, different people with different skill sets. There's not this big homogeneous mass of people walking into assembly lines every morning. And... Um, so that's yeah, that's a clear example of, of you, you call it fragmentation. I call it disaggregation. Just we we have many different economies. We have different economies in different cities, different economies by different education classes, um, different economies by different industries, different economies even within industries by di by sort of well-run, forward-thinking companies versus companies that are trying to hang on to older ways of doing things. Well, since I come from the libertarian part of your three languages, it sounds to me like it's a recipe for just stop trying to guide things from Washington, shut most of it down, and let uh, and let let the private sector and civil society do its job. And it's, uh, civil society is something we ought to touch yep. on, because yep. I, I think as you talk about it, the subsidiarity right. idea of, of getting problems solved closest to the to the where, where they exist, you're likely to end up with a better, better yeah, outcome. You know, a multitude of circumstances should suggest a multitude of problem solvers, rather than hoping that we finally find just the right MIT professor to figure out the healthcare system. Well, we have Arnold. M yeah, <laughs> maybe the answer really is that this this requires different kinds of solutions in different kinds of places. So, to me, absolutely, the 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 challenge of of fragmentation or or, or disaggregation points in the direction of less aggregated solutions. Well, but let me pu push back because um, I think the subsidiary, subsidiarity story is 
in some ways a form of nostalgia for when sort of we had this Tocquevillian world of uh, religious institutions yeah. and um, you know, clubs that uh, that incorporated were barn raising together. Were uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so why why isn't that just another form of nostalgia? Well, in some ways, America is more like that than it was at mid in the mid twentieth century. So there is some reason to look for ways in which we've dealt with immense diversity before. America in the nineteenth century was very fractured and fragmented. Its politics looked a lot like our politics, so there are reasons to look to that time. But I also think looking looking to something more like subsidiarity from here means looking to how we move forward from here to there, not backward. That is, it's about it's more post-industrial than industrial. And the question is, how do we make our politics more like what works in our economic life and in other parts of our life? And in the 21st century, what works tends to be customized and tends to be uh, tends to operate by op- by giving people choices and options rather than by giving them prefabricated solutions. And so it seems to me that this is a way of thinking about how to modernize our politics as much as it is a way of learning well, from the past. From my world of investing and, and business, particularly private equity venture capital, the, the, the businesses you want to invest in are the ones that are the most focused, highly specialized in dealing with a specific problem either good or service, and those are the ones that create little monopolies in their niche because nobody else can do it better, faster, cheaper than they can. But that comes from intense specialization. Mm-hmm. And yet when we talk about these other ideas about not having a you know cohesive foreign policy or this sort of thing, I, I, I kind of lose where that would fit into the, our model here. But in economics, in any case, I think you're arguing for radical uh, uh, you know, disaggregation, decentralization of things. Yeah. Letting people it's, solve these problems. Yeah. But or it's, it's possible. Not, you know, the idea of subsidiarity is not just going down to the lowest level, but Real quick, the for those of us that, do, that, that are new to that word, yeah, define so subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is really a word that's imported from Catholic social teaching, more or less. But uh, the idea is basically that power should reside as close to the level of the community as reasonable. So mm-hmm. it's not always go down to the lowest possible level, but when confronted with a problem, think, could this be solved locally? If it could be, then it should be. If it can't be, then we have to think about higher levels of government or higher levels of solutions. But to have a preference for the local. Can we come back to the polarization, to the uh, three languages, the the issues that Arnold raised? I live in a rural county in Virginia. We have 6,000 people, and we are divided pretty much in half right and left. And there's some hard right and there's some hard left. And if you get people together at, at lunch, pretty quickly they'll start talking national politics, and then they and then they hate each other. Mm-hmm. But then if you start talking about whether we need a bike trail or not, you really can't tell what their politics are because they're into they're into the local solution mode. And is that what we're talking about? Yeah, there are ways in which dealing with problems locally means being more practical about them. Um, ideology yeah. doesn't go away, and political differences don't go away, but. You're forced to think about questions a little bit less abstractly, and you're forced to deal with people as human beings in front of you. And that does help some. Some of the problems we have with polarization are about abstracting away from human beings Mm -hmm. to uh, these sorts of broad general ideas we have about other people. It's not always avoidable, but where it is avoidable, it's worth trying to avoid. Just just a random concern. We're thinking that it would be nice if, Politics would be more like, you know, other forms of life, 
it seems like we're going in the other direction, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. with people right. telling, corp asking corporations to, you know, say, w announce which side you're on on political issues. It's just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's some... There's... I'm not saying things are going well. I don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> how, well, how would we get... How... I, I, I think we know the what. What we like, I think what we may, might agree on is, the, is this decentralization, yeah. de disaggregation, solving... Right. How do we get there? Yeah. And how do we tamp down on the on this tendency to make it make things so political and get so wound up over it? I I hope that we're just going through a period of learning how to deal with our new media and people hmm. you know, people see something on Facebook and they say, "Oh, I've got to jump on that. And I've got to participate in that. And I've got to you know sort of like that or hate that." Um, so somehow adjusting away from being sort of social media addicts to being like community <laughs> act, you know, community yeah. oriented would be a, a helpful change. But I don't know how we get from speaking, here to there. Speaking of uh, living in a rural county, we had a massive windstorm, blew down trees. We were without internet for. I don't know, three, four days. Yeah, sounds great. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that putting it in terms of, of adjusting to this new reality is probably right, or at least is the hopeful way to think about it, which is to say we're, we're, we're getting used to dealing with new tools and with new media, and at this point we have not found quite the right balance in quite the right way, and we're letting the, the tools we have distract us or misshape our interactions with one another. And we're, among other things, we're mistaking the expression of opinion for engagement and activity so yeah. that you just kind of put something out there and people respond with a thumbs up or a <clears throat> thumbs down or, you know, somebody sends around uh, some statement of outrage about something that happened and you like it on Facebook and you feel like you've done something. That's that's just a mistake about whether you've done something or not. But it's it's it channels the energy that might go into actual civic activity, into something that's a lot less than civic activity. I hope that that's something that we kind of learn our way out of over time. But obviously, it's hard to say. When we say we, who do we mean by we? I mean that's the that's as a public policy guy. Explain to me who the we is that's well, going to bring this about. Look, it, 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 first and foremost, it's just each of us as a citizen. Um, and it dawns I, on us that we've got to change. It dawns on us that we're not happy with the status quo. I don't yeah. think any of us are too far from that realization. Right. Um, people are not happy with the status quo. And so the question is, what can be done that's different, and how can it help us get out of the frustration that we're feeling? It would take some leadership. It would take someone saying, maybe if we tried to address this problem at the state level, at the local level, or maybe just saying you're angry on Twitter isn't actually anything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who is it that ought to change? I, I think in a free country, it's you. It's me. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. That you sort of you start with yourself and look at uh, look at what you're doing. Is it constructive? Are you do you feel like you're solving the problems in your own life? And if you're if you're not even solving the problems in your own life, then probably you're not going to be solving other people's. Well, I've written on my website that uh, I don't believe. My view is that 95% of the problems we face in life cannot be solved through politics. It's got to be solved through everything else, family, vocation, um, taking care of your health, things like that. Yet we seem to spend 95% of our time on the 5% thing that we can't really do much about anyway. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, I hope most people don't spend as much time on politics as I do. But I was just uh, I was looking at you. Yeah, when I, said I know. That. I, I, it's hard for me to make this, this complaint because I've kind of chosen to be here. I don't really. Um, look, I, I I agree. I think that um, it is in some ways also a function of our kind of media environment that we are constantly flooded with news that demands our attention and reaction about national politics. Um, that's not everybody's experience, but it is a lot of people's experience, and especially in this kind of moment. Um, you know, I, I again, I think the sheer fact that people are not simply satisfied with how this is going suggests that there's at least an opening for different ways of thinking about how to solve both our own problems, our community's problems, uh, ultimately our country's problems, that aren't simply politics broadly understood. Uh, mm. I think there is an openness for that. There's a demand, but there is a shortage of supply, and that should look like an opportunity to people in public life. Yeah, I, I guess one vision I have is that is a media that is not advertising-driven, because mm. I think that creates a lot of pathologies, because they, in order to get... Because you're advertising-driven, you need to get people to pay attention. In order to get people to pay attention, you've got to feed outrage. Um, and so maybe if, if, if business models evolve differently, and I think for a variety of reasons, people are getting a little or more than a little frustrated with the advertising model that's behind Google and Facebook, that they, um, they see that the, the adverse incentives that that creates, and that may at some point create an opportunity for somebody to come into that, uh, to, to use the term space, to create go into those, those businesses with a different model mm -hmm. and appeal to people and draw some people away from that and get yeah. away from those. It is worth saying we're early in the kind of new media world, and it may be that this just isn't how things settle down and that this is not the sustainable model. Uh, you know, we are adjusting to a new set of arrangements. I, I can see, I mean, you know, I hire people out of college just about every year to work at National Affairs. And I, I can just tell you over the last few years that what you find when you look at people's social media presence when you're considering them for a job has changed for the better dramatically in the last few years as people have become aware that what they put out there is ultimately going to be looked at by other people when they're adults. And it's something that, that as if they just didn't know 10 years ago, and now they do. And that's a kind of social learning that I would like to think happens, uh, I'd like to think happens on a broader scale in our society. There are all kinds of things, that, ways that we use social media and other new media now that, you know, if they don't work for us, we may just end up changing them. Well, I, I, you both know I worked in the Trump transition and, and, and watched people try to get jobs in the Trump administration. And not surprisingly, our, uh, our, our president, who does understand tweeting, uh, yeah. the first thing they looked at was the social media history of every, every single uh, mm -hmm. wannabe. And uh, in many cases, it wasn't a good record, and yeah. they didn't end up with a job. <laughs> but then... Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I think college kids are more aware of that now than they used to be because they're just told it. They, yeah. you know, it wasn't as obvious a few years back. Well, we're we're wandering into into. We could go with you guys. We could probably cover every topic on the on the planet. Well, let's let's bring this back to where we uh, where we started with the, with the languages and the, and the fractured republic. Uh, give me some reason for optimism about where we can start communicating with each other. 
Well, so optimism, I don't really quite believe in optimism. I believe in hope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, optimism is just expecting good things to happen. Uh, okay. That's, I All wouldn't right. do that. But uh, hope is the belief that the resources are there for good things to happen. Hope yeah. drives you to act. Uh, and I think there are a lot of reasons for hope. I think, first of all, all the things we complain about, about how America's changed over the past half century or so, are the opposite sides of the coin of things that have been good mm -hmm. and how America's changed. We are a more dynamic country. We have more options in every realm of life. It gives us a lot of strengths, um, and we should be grateful for those. And I also think, again, the sheer <coughs> fact that we are not satisfied with how things are going in our politics means that there is a demand out there for ways of doing better. So I, I don't think that we just remain in this phase of dissatisfied frustration. I think we're going to see various kinds of ideas get thrown up against the wall. Some of them are going to be very bad, um, but they're not all going to be very bad. This is a country that is inventive in times of trouble, and I don't think that's changed. So I am hopeful. And, and, and we're going to read about these in National Affairs. Absolutely. Okay. Arnold? Uh, I think my hope for optimism comes from some of the feedback I've been getting on the Three Languages book, which is I think there's a, there are a lot of people, yeah. I'd almost call it a silent majority, who are not as polarized, who are not as ideologically committed, um, and who are willing to see the other side. Uh, so I think there's, there is a demand out there for some people with, for some more moderation. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that manages to manifest itself in politics or whether the primary system and the other things keep it from happening. But uh, I think the, uh, the, there are a lot of people who want peace and not civil war. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they, I mean, I think that's true in, in places that even have wars. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people don't really want them. Uh, so you can't count on the fact that, that most people are want peace to to generate peace but it does give you hope i agree and i can't recommend enough that everyone or you 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 my audience uh mm -hmm. pick up a copy of the three languages of politics and the fractured republic because what they both do is they're both very interesting in terms of breaking down paradigms and breaking about how you think about things and i think that's the first step to the kind of things that we're, uh, we're we want to achieve so thank you, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Arnold, where can you be reached? ArnoldKling.com? That's the best place. Okay. Yeah, start there. Yuval? I'm at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, so EPPC.org is a good place to find EPPC.org. EPPC.org. EPPC. Okay, we got that. All right, thanks, everyone, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time to continue the conversation. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks. America is divided into three separate moral universes, conservative, progressive, and libertarian. And we're also living in an age of political nostalgia where for the left, 1965 and the great society is the best time for them. And for Republicans, it's 1981 and the Reagan Revolution. But the explosion of diversity and specialization in America today means our country looks completely different. This requires a completely new and different worldview. A more fragmented society requires more targeted solutions. One solution is the so-called concept of subsidiarity. Uh, the idea is basically that power should reside at the level of the community, as close as possible to the problem. You think, the way you think about this is, uh, could it be solved locally? If it could be, then it should be. 
I see this playing out all the time where I live in rural Virginia. Uh, when politics come up and people talk about national issues, it almost always leads to the type of heated, damaging discussion we see on social media. On the other hand, local issues often trigger an instinct of pragmatism and cooperation. Think about it. If we want solutions, we should start work with the principle of subsidiarity. It's a bit of an awkward word, but it works. It means local people solving local problems together. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.